Greetings and welcome to the very first of what I hope to be many episodes of the Afrofuturist podcast. My name is Ahmed Best. I will be your host. Thank you for listening. A very short history of why I'm doing this podcast. I'm mostly known for playing Jar Jar Binks in the Star Wars prequels, and it was that experience that led me on the path to this podcast and a path to the career trajectory that I'm on right now. Being a part of Star Wars gave me a a very deep, a very well-informed look at how someone can shape the future. George Lucas was amazing about letting me do what I do and collaborating with me on creating this brand new character and brand new approach to characters and approach to filmmaking. It was really George's future forecasting that made all of that happen. I mean, he saw the writing on the wall and just went right to it, just jumped right into it. And he was a catalyst for where we are right now with movie making. I realized when I was in that environment and it was so electric and it was so exciting that that's where I wanted my career to live. I wanted my career to be on that edge of what's coming, what's happening. And that infected my entire life when it came to, you know, loving politics, loving culture, loving um writing and speculative fiction and comic books. Like I really wanted to live this life of on the edge of what's next and and having these ideas of what's going on in the future. And I love talking about it. And um, that's where this podcast came from. Most of the time when I'm searching around the internet for cool things about the future, be it technology, be it culture, be it social awareness, black and brown people aren't often considered in the conversation. And I really wanted to do my part into bringing that perspective into the idea of how we see and how we shape the future. Which brings me to our first guest. His name is Dr. Lonnie Brooks. And Dr. Lonnie Brooks and I were introduced through my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law's name is Dr. Aram Sinreich, and he is a professor of communication at American University. And when Aram introduced me to Dr. Brooks, Dr. Brooks and I immediately hit it off. We had a two-hour conversation, and we realized we really lined up. Like, all of our ideas lined up. We had the same thought about, you know, including the global majority in the crafting of the future. And he was just so well-versed and well-experienced in forecasting and thinking and speculating and discussing the future that I was completely blown away. I was riveted and I wanted him to be the resident Afrofuturist of this podcast, which he is. He is also a producer of this podcast and he will be bringing in guests as well that we will be talking to that speak about future forecasting and technologies, gaming, um, and things like graphic novels, comic books, speculative fiction. People are actively doing that right now who you may have heard of, who you might not have heard of, but who you will definitely be a fan of after you hear them on the podcast. In this conversation, Lonnie and I unpack a lot. We talk about things that I was curious about that aren't really talked about in conversations when you speak about things like technology and science. Like we talk about how the English-speaking world, with which is like English as your first language world, has a very strong grasp of the present, but might not have the tools to consider the future in its totality in ways that you haven't thought of. It was it was just really great conversation and really interesting conversation. And and we will footnote all of those things and all of those references in the show notes, which I hope you will enjoy. You can find Dr. Lonnie Brooks on Twitter at Avilani, A-V-I-L-O-N-N-Y. Uh, and you can also find him at Lonnie J. Avi Brooks on Facebook. And 
I will say this once again, when you listen to the podcast, he is our resident Afrofuturist, so you will be able to find him here and listen to him here. He is a professor at Cal State University in East Bay, so you can find him there. Uh, He's a wonderful person and an amazing intellect and a great guy to talk to, and I'm very, very proud of him being a part of this podcast. Um, And I'm very happy to bring you this first episode of what I hope to be many, many more. Thank you so much for listening and please enjoy Dr. Lonnie Brooks. The future, I remember the future, reading the future, about future, people like Brenda Laurel who did the first game for girls called Purple Moon. And then when I got to graduate school in communication at UC San Diego, my mentor, Phil Agri, said, oh, maybe you could work for, um, get an internship at Interval Research Corporation which was co-founded by, um, which was founded by the co-founder of Microsoft, Phil, um, Paul Allen. And it was all about creating, incubating digital industries um, at Interval. So they had an interdisciplinary mix of artists, engineers, philosophers, thinkers that would come together. And so I was on an internship with um, the Explorers group. So right. we would, you know, go to concerts and look at college youth and, track trends and see how young people were interacting with technology. Right. And, but at interval, it was really fun. I mean, you know, you had people going, bringing film from Kathmandu and recreating, oh, Timbuktu, that is, Timbuktu, and creating like installations where you get on a uh, rotating dais and you're kind of immersed in Timbuktu's city, right. you know, and experiencing a cave-like installation or VR-like installation of being there. Right. And I was just, you know, it was fun. Yeah. And I was like, I want to do this. You know, I want to I want to be part of this future. Yeah. And I wanted to write about them in my dissertation. But they said, well, we're trying to keep everything private. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, I guess I won't be <laughs> studying you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then at a, a, a winter holiday festival they said um someone introduced me to um what's his name again <sighs> i want to say tim harvey but i don't think that's his name but he was at the institute for the future right and he said oh well you can come and study us and i was like really and he said yeah we're a nonprofit, so we have to make our stuff public and i was like okay yeah so i went to them in uh 95 oh no that was uh, actually 98 and I became an intern with them, and I decided to ask them to follow their technology futures group, right. which was called Technology Horizons. Nice. And so I studied them, followed them, interviewed them for the next four years, and um, I found myself in a sketch skit that they were doing about the future of television uh-huh. in, in the home and technology in the home. So you had these two little girls that were um, cousins, and we're watching the same program at the same time, but thousands of miles away in different rooms. Oh, wow. And they had their own avatars that would kind of run their stuff. And then I play their older brother. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm, I'm a cool hipster, and I come in, and my avatar name is, is Dreadlock. Uh-huh. And Dreadlock wreaks havoc. You know, he, he shuts down his sister's avatars because he wants the biggest console in the room to look at his stuff. So he kind of knocks them off their screens. Wow. So it was, it was fun to, to do that, you know, to just kind of play that role and, and do this for all these, you know, companies. Right. You know, they, they work with for-profit, non-profit, and, and government agencies. Yeah. And so the Institute for the Future has an interesting history where they come out of the RAND Corporation, uh-huh. uh, the engineers from RAND who wanted to do more social futures than they were able to do at RAND. Right. Go beyond uh, a war footing. So we kind of just jumped in the conversation, which is what <laughs> Lonnie and I usually do when we start talking, because we share so many um, of the same interests. And that's why he is the resident Afrofuturist at the Afrofuturist podcast. And um, I really wanted to talk to Lonnie first um, in as we're shaping the podcast because well number one like my conversation with him was the reason why I wanted to do a podcast because my brother-in-law um introduced me to Lonnie and 
we immediately started talking and we really hit it off. And I loved where his head was at and where he was going. And the fact that he's an Afrofuturist and an educator. Um, and my thing as, as someone who, as a creator and as, as someone who, who makes things and who acts in things, I really love things that are just grounded in, in a reality. And oftentimes in sci-fi, the science really makes you feel like you're there and really makes you feel like you're real. And so when we start talking about the future, when I start thinking about and talking about the future, I always want to know like what is grounded in reality, like what is real, what I can use to, you know, then go off and, and, and try to be creative, which is why I really love talking about the future. Um, right. And so when I when I started talking with Lonnie, I was just like, "This we we have to like just share these ideas because mm-hmm. um, I run up against a lot of people who are always talking about the now and being in the present and living in the present, and um, I don't think speculating about the future takes you away from the present. I think it actually enhances the present. Absolutely. Um, so that was one of the big reasons why I want to start this podcast. And, and I'm glad Lonnie is here. Um, and this interview is just going to be with Lonnie. Usually Lonnie is, um, uh, well, his role as, you know, one of the producers and the resident Afrofuturist is to expose us, myself included, including everyone out there, to people who are thinking this way. Um. So I wanted to do a show just with the person that uh, got me excited about thinking this way. And, and that's why Lonnie's here. So um, you came from the communications world and then moved into the future world. Now, how did what brought you to communications and then from communications, what interested you in focusing on the future? You know, it's interesting because <clears throat> I went to UCLA and I took a class in the late 80s called Human Interaction, um, Human Computer Interaction. Right. And that really got me excited. I took it with my professor, Christine Borgman, who was then a professor in library and information science. And uh, by the time I wanted to take communication at UCLA, it was too, it was too late. Right. <laughs> I was in my late senior. So I was like, okay, how can I do this on the graduate school level? So she got me into the Library and Information Science program at UCLA, and then um, I the first study I did was about um, multi-user uh, text worlds, the mm-hmm. virtual reality worlds that they were creating through text called MUDs, multi-user dimensions, kind of a takeoff on the Dungeons and Dragons um, theme. Right. And I just wrote I wrote an ethnographic essay about how I was in this world at MIT, it was a simulacrum of MIT, and I went to the ballroom, and all of a sudden someone takes my character and starts dancing with me, wow. beyond my control, and I was like, huh, <laughs> you know, I felt helpless, right. you know, like you violated something, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. but um, it really bridged my interest among, I grew up in Los Angeles, so speculating about the future was part of my DNA, I had Star Trek posters on my wall, right. you know, I was in love with the communications um, specialist, Lieutenant Uhuru. Uh, we all were. Yeah. <laughs> so my dad was a writer, too, and uh, helped struggling black artists. My mom always read. So for me, communication was just a natural inclination. Right. You know, I grew up in a theater production group, too. Nice. So we immersed ourselves in Shakespeare mm-hmm. and, uh, and making Shakespeare relevant and present. So I thought, well, if you can do that about the past, you can do that about the future. Right. And so... From um, being at Library and Information Science, I got interested in new media, emerging new media, and I wanted to find out who was doing that. So UC San Diego uh, was doing that. You know, um, they were doing some cool things. I got introduced to the Interval um, Research Corporation, and then from there to the Institute for the Future. And I was interested in emerging media. So it was kind of a natural thing in the late 90s. <clears throat> where you're talking about new media, uh, it was natural to study it as part of uh, the communication field. Right. And all our professors were asking me about how to do stuff, you know, on their computers, right? Right, right. <laughs> so so this, was, this was easy, and I had a great cohort that I was with, too. Um, Tarleton Gillespie, Fred Turner, 
Mary Gray, you know, these folks that I was learning with and bouncing on ideas off with. And so from there, just being able to see that, wow, people get paid at the Institute for the Future to, to create future scenarios. Right. Uh, they do a, future, a 10 year forecast every 10 years about what the future will be like. So they're working on the 10 year forecast for 2027 right now. Mm-hmm. And what struck me was I did a, they did a, a conference in the year 2000 called Cafe 2010. Yeah. And they started from the year 2010 to see how the decade would go. They dressed up in costumes. They pretended to do a news report with some of the IFTF staffers. Wow. And as they were doing this news report, they would have people hack into the news report. Uh, Chinese entrepreneur, Latino entrepreneur. And it was interesting that they had alternative voices. Now, some of them were stereotypical, but they captured a tone that I think was really prescient. Mm -hmm. You know, like things like the Drudge Report that was happening by now. You know, by 2010, the news wasn't the same type of news we were listening to. We were getting multiple um, aspects of the news from citizen journalists, from citizen, other citizen groups, independent um, people who called themselves journalists, like the Drudge Report. So it really happened. You know, it wasn't their most popular conference among their clients. It was like, what am I paying for this shit for? <laughs> like, right, right, right. Like you guys are going way too overboard here. Yeah. But I was, I thought they had their handle on something for once. And the, the fact that they were introducing minority characters too really said, okay, I, I, I think this is, you guys are onto something here, you know? And um, so I just wanted to make what they were doing transparent for the rest of us too. Um, Because I would talk to my mentors about the connection between communication and the future, you know, and it was it was just like, well, you you know, you're talking about emerging media, you're you're talking about a global impact, Um, you know, how do we make the future salient in our language? A lot of times, English doesn't afford us enough terms and vocabulary to discuss the, the future. Really, you know, yeah, we have a paucity of of language that it's hard for us to speak in the future. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because we have such a linear notion in our heads about what the future is. You know, it has to it has to be, you know, cause and effect and, you know, backwards or forwards. Um, and so we have such linear linearity and in, built into our language that it's hard for us to focus too far in the future because people think you're not practical enough you know, with that linear thinking. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where the self-help industry has really found a niche. Like they have invested themselves in having you not think about the future and Mm -hmm. really think about what's going on now and staying in the present moment. Do you think that's, did the language, does the English language afford that type of thinking? Is that where, is that why we started thinking that way? Yeah, I think that, I think I think the English language is 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 good at at getting us to think about the here and now as a practicality. Mm. You know, um, that that's part of I guess you could say American ingenuity in some ways of you know just being practical, being present. Although we do have a futurist strain in our in our American ethos too. You know, that's definitely there. But it's the it's like for the day to day person as Elise uh, Boulding talked about in the 1970s, they are exhausted, too exhausted by the present to be able to think about the future. Wow. Yeah. You know? I would and... say that. <laughs> Do you think that was because of the advent of of industries? Like, did you think? Do you think like the the big um, industrial revolution put us all in this here and now present mindset? Definitely, like our education system is, you know, based on the, the, the bells of the factory, basically the different periods. And so our students are made to think about, you know, work and progression and they're not able, they're already set into a, a really tight box, you know, from the get-go. Yeah. Um, and I think that's changing, luckily, but probably hasn't changed in time. <laughs> What do you think would be the thing that um, education could change tomorrow? 
that would get students to start thinking more about um, their their progress in the future and less about getting to work. Yeah, yeah. I would say you know that they create uh, a future memoir. You know that they could write mm. down daily what their next week or month or year or years or decade could look like. What do they want to do in the next five years? You know, it's funny that you mentioned about self-help movements because maybe the one infamous self-help movement that I actually attended was uh, Warner Earhart's um, Landmark Foundation. Yes, the Landmark Foundation. (laughs) Starting with Est. And, uh, you know, it definitely has cultist feeling, but uh, it helped in creating more language about the future, that particular uh, work. So I took from it what I could and left the rest behind. But that, in terms of thinking about a theme for the next five years, what do you want to live into, you know, as they would say, um, what, what conversation will you have? Because they're really big about that our lives, and this isn't just them. I mean, it's Hegel, it's, you know, philosophers have been saying this for years too, that what conversations do you want to live into? And build, and that our life is constructed out of conversation, out of our, out of our worlds. Yeah. And so, you know, to have students really get that from the get-go. You know, what language do you want to have? Um, what gap? You know, if you don't have a gap as a human being between where you are and what you want to be, you're not you're not living. What do you mean by gap? Well, uh, there's there's a gap between the level of knowledge and learning and experience you have, and then the next level that you want to attain. And there's a gap between those two. And uh, there's a theorist, Vygotsky, that talks about this gap and how peers and teachers um, help you bridge this gap. Yeah. You know, in, in, in professional terms, it's called the zone of proximal development. But it's really that, that learning cap, gap that you want to live into and bridge and get to the next level. And I think the same way, we can do that with students into the in terms of the future, right. you know. What's the next uh, project, goal, you know, achievement, uh, vision that you have that you want to live into, and what are the tools and and people that you need to connect with to have that happen? Yeah, you know. Yeah, this is something I talk about a lot with my buddy Josh Waitzkin. Um, he wrote this book called The Art of Learning, and and he and I, while he was writing the book. He and I were um, training jujitsu together, and oh, we would wow. have these long talks about education. And and um, he's he's really really passionate about learning. He's really passionate about education. And because he was, you know, a chess prodigy growing up, he was he's able to teach through his experience as as a player um, how to pretty much fill that gap you're talking about. What life lessons right. you can learn and and you know, what Robert Greene talks about in the apprenticeship stage. How do you get to mm-hmm. that next level? You know, and he does it through Tai Chi. Josh does it through Tai Chi. He does it through Jiu-Jitsu. He does it, does it through chess. And he does it through his, you know, philosophy and learning and stuff. So we would talk about that a lot. How do you fill that gap? Like, how do you get students from the beginning phase, I'm interested in this, to actually being, you know, to this level of pre-mastery without boring them to tears. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, and I go through that with my son a lot too. You know, I Uh talk to my son and he's just like, man, school is boring. (laughs) Um, And and it's because he's in the present moment. He doesn't see what's going to happen in the future. He doesn't have that idea, you know, of what, where he's going to be. So I think that's a challenge, like, you know, and what, what would be a good thing to get, keep, students interested in their future yeah i think i think i think games games forecasting games yeah really help to fulfill that gap um you know one of the things that we do with students too is to create uh futures constructs that we call them some type of challenge right um like for instance um we created one challenge where the un is looking for a special project group to think about ten years, ten thousand years ahead to save the trees of the world. Right. You know what? What kind of practice or consulting group can you come up with 
to meet that challenge. Yeah. So I had one team of students come up with like a video game called Legacy Tree. You know, All that right. you would be able to adopt a tree or a grove of trees and nurture them that you could pass on to your family or other people, interested groups, and yeah. you'd nurture those trees and see them through the next 10,000 years through generations, right. you know? And I just love that idea, you know? So yeah. it, was, it was looking at that too. Um, we had another thing with, around energy um, and we had students think about different energy futures as PR specialists. Wow. Um, and different constraints, different scenarios of energy use. Some would be like, you know, we're super constrained with resources. You know, how do you create uh, an energy device that would, you know, help within these constraints? Mm. You know, uh, so that was fun. I mean, we had students uh, coming. I remember this really great skit that my students came up with where they're running and they have something, a wearable on their arm, and then they put it into their desk and it turns on the lights, you know? Wow. So they were like thinking, and, and these are things that are going on. Like in Africa, there's a soccer ball now that they, that they created. I forgot the group, but you know, you play with this soccer ball um, and it gets charged Yeah, and then you can turn on lamps Wow, and, you know, turn on the lights in your home or even use it as a heat source. Right. So it was, you know, creating some type of imaginative construct with students, I think really makes a difference. You right. know, and if you make it practical enough, so you still have an anchor in their world. Yeah. You know, that's important, you know, because you don't want to get too far away from that. Right. Because um, they'll call you on it and they don't, yeah. they don't care if they call you on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that, that was good. And then we also have a story called um, Professional Life Forecast for 2040. Right. Where they're creating a short two and a half, two page story about what their professional lives will be like based on a decisive moment in their life that's happening in 2040. Wow. It could be like you're late for a meeting. Um, you know, you're getting, uh, you're mentoring someone, you got fired, yeah. you know, and students will do that. And like the first day of class, they're like, wait, the art project is, I only have to write a two page story. I was like, yeah. And they're like, okay, I can do that. <laughs> so they feel mastery. Although there's a lot of steps to get to that point. You know, but, you know, we, we, we get to introduce them to how to anticipate signals of the future, do some scan, environmental scanning, um, develop their characters, have story circles where we're sharing stories. Um, and, and that seems to work. I want to get back. I'm going to yeah. come back to the education part and mm -hmm. I, and, and I definitely want to come back to some, some of the games. Oh yeah. I got to talk about that. Yeah. We talk mm -hmm. about, um, when Lonnie told me he has all these like future forecasting games, I was like amazing and in, I really <laughs> wanted to play these games. Cause I, I like the idea of actually trying to wrap your head around what your future is going to be based on these, you know, really specific confines. But I, I want to ask you about, um, when did you realize that you were an Afrofuturist? Like, mm. do you just, are you called that or do mm. you call yourself that? Does that happen to you or is that something that mm. you create? <laughs> well, usually people have, you know, introduced me as a futurist, but I think the Afrofuturist really came out of when Ronaldo Anderson put out that call for Afrofuturism 2.0, um, the rise of astro-blackness. It's where my future side um, met the critique of the Institute for the Future that I was doing. Right. From a minority perspective, they merged together. Right. Where that, where that idea of Afrofuturists came and hit me strongly. Like, wow, I'm not the only person thinking about the future from a minority and critical perspective. Mm -hmm. that, I, that there's kin folk out there and that I can do something to make this transparent. You know, because I think that's the thing is that this enterprise of futures thinking becomes such an elite and not very transparent institution, despite the fact that the Institute for the Future is, is nonprofit. Right. People just aren't exposed. So for me, um, it became my mission in my dissertation too to make this work transparent and to covertly, even in my classes, like they would be called interpersonal communication. You know, they'd be called organizational communication. They'd be called relational communication in organizations. For me, it was like, okay, how can I 
make them think about the future. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I was, so that's when it really coalesced that I was on a mission. Was there an event that you went to or that you participated mm. in where you were just like, they are not thinking about the future for people that look like me? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, well, yeah. I mean, I think even that skit that I mentioned, yeah. um, it took place in San Jose about the home of the future. Right. I felt like, well, this is for a very upper class, um, group of people like where it hit me that I was participating in a lead exercise and that who would see this, who would see this exercise would not be the people that, that I would want to see this. Right. You know, and I felt all of a sudden I was like the only person of color there pretty much, you know, yeah. representing everybody. And I was like, wow, really? I can't believe. So it, it hit me at that moment that I, I needed to, to talk about this more, right? you know, to think. Of, and, and it was hard, you know, not to get swept up because, you know, I, I want to be part of their future too. I wanted to become part of the Institute for the future at some point. Right. You know, if the crash hadn't happened in 2001, I might have become a member of their team. Yeah. But I think I still would have, you know, been able to become that um, representative. Yeah. Too. But that that's, that's I think, when it really hit me, too. That and seeing, well, sorry, Paul. Paul Saffo's uh, white collie dog that he had. I remember it clearly. This They were at um, Menlo Park at the time is where the Institute for the Future originated. Right. And I remember Paul Saffo, who's a noted futurist and was a director at the Institute for the Future for the longest time, came there with his white collie, and he just looked like the epitome of the 1% to me. Right. <laughs> at that moment, I was like... Wow. Okay. You know, and then meeting various managers from Intel and Kodak and um, IBM and knowing that these conversations about the future were happening, but without minority representation. Have you, did you ever bring that up to them? Did you ever say like, why aren't there any more folks here that look like me? Yeah. You know, we would talk about that. They would say, well, you know, part of it is that the funding base for futures thinking really shifted in the seventies uh -huh. from being a government funding enterprise to being a corporate funding one. Right. And that they would always say, I mean, I'd have people say to me, you know, we, we can only do like one minute blips about the future when we're thinking more deeply about the future. But for our corporate funders, we have to give them something in order to get paid, mm, you know? Right. So it was like, they had to, at the end of the day, be able to fund their work. And at the time, the nonprofit aspect of their enterprise was getting, I think, compromised. You know, right. they, they had to f publish their research, but it wasn't published, I think, in, a, in an accessible form. Now, that's changed a lot. Uh -huh. but, um, but yeah, so they would, they would note that. Um, and I would... But I, I kept wanting to push them a little bit more, too. And um, so they're just just to yeah. really get a grasp on this. Yeah, yeah. Their reasoning for not reaching out to more black folk was because they didn't have money. Yes. I think that's and, and that there wasn't enough interest among their clients too in right. certain things. I mean, I had someone recently tell me that they want to do more work on prison reform, but there just hasn't been a lot of um, clients that are pursuing it right you know mm -hmm. so um and so it's it's still a con uh issue of constraints on who can you get to fund certain types of research about the future right and you know you have you have the future dominated by corporate interests and they're looking mm -hmm. for products yes they're looking for products it's all product Period. based yeah. yeah it's like you know the institute for the future in some ways can create a scenario and marketing strategy basically you know, because they provide these scenarios, which are which can translate well into mar stories right. about the future, they could translate into marketing campaigns. What do you think there is, <clears throat> or even do you think there is, a place for the Afrofuturist perspective in the corporations to develop products that would benefit everyone? Like, what is specific about? being an Afrofuturist that is beneficial for all of these companies and these corporations. Yeah. Um, 
So what would be beneficial is that, well, that's a thing. Like, okay, now just to give the Institute for the Future a, a lot, a lot of credit. They've created a Futures for Good program right. and they're doing a lot of important nonprofit work. In fact, they're aligning with us and they're going to be at the Black Speculative Arts Movement Festival too. Right. And we're going to talk so. about the Black Speculative Arts <laughs> Movement in, in great detail in a few. But I think people are scared to talk about the future of minorities in America. Really? I think so. I think usually w when they do Futures Research, it's about more global cultures and ethnicities. Right. But I think they're in other futures organizations are scared to talk about race because they think they're going to not say the right thing, maybe, or they don't have the funding or they don't know because they don't, there's not a lot of black folk in the futures realm. Right. So they kind of just sidestep over it. But if you were going to talk about the future, especially a minority, you know, a place where we're going to be a majority minority by 2050. Right. You need to talk about it. Yeah. And the Afrofuturist has to have, be there. You know, if you're going to have automation, people possibly displaced and out of work. Yeah. Um, but you're going to have new jobs and opportunities. The Afrofuturist has to be there. Right. You know, um, unless you want something worse. Right. Because we're gonna we're gonna make it great. Yeah. You know, what would be like? the perfect path for somebody who goes, I think I can be an Afrofuturist in corporate America to help benefit the minority majority in 2050. Where, what would you say do today? Start now, do this. Mm -hmm. I would say combine art, culture, and technology together. Right. You know, perhaps in a really good interaction design program where you can get exposed to those fields. Mm-hmm because culture and technology really are a part of each other. And a lot of times we think that they're not. Right. You know, um, when they're just integral. Right. It's the STEAM idea versus mm -hmm. the STEM idea. Yeah. You know, the science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, throwing the arts in there. Right, exactly. So it's like, you know, um, you can inspire kids with art and technology. You know, right. you say, well, how do you design your robot? or you know, how do you design a device in right. the future? And they'll get excited about that. Yeah. You know, and coding to make games, you know, is a good way too. But I think coding isn't enough. I mean, that's kind of a mechanical skill. Right. You know, and it can be a creative skill too, but you, you need to infuse it with imagination, you know. Um, yeah, I read something recently where it says coding is going to be the next blue collar job. Right, right. Yes, I saw that. You uh -huh. know, rather than like mining you're going to have these people, just armies of people doing basic coding. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Do you believe that, or what do you think about coding kind of being this new way to segregate? Right, right. I know. Like, yeah, that's true. It's like, okay, let's get the black coders going. You yeah. Know, they can be the new uh, blue collar force. Right. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I worry about that. Um, that's why I think that you have to surround those coders with art, yeah. you know, um, that don't limit them. That's why, I can, you know, sometimes I worry about these boot camps or people talking about like, oh, well, we don't need four-year programs of education anymore. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, like, you know, Bill Gates, he didn't, he dropped out of college, but he had a preparatory school that already surrounded him with a lot of That's right. good shit, you know? Yeah. So everyone doesn't have that. So yeah. if you're just going to limit yourself to a six-month boot camp in coding, Okay, that's good, but that's not enough. Right. You know, that'll get you up to speed on your coding, but you need to be informed. Yeah, and, and the, you know, that's a good point about Bill Gates. He had an institution around them in which he created these relationships that he can take his knowledge to and excel and become Bill Gates. He didn't just lock himself in a room by himself and then walk out of the room and was like, here's Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> you know? right, right, right. He had relationships. He had people. And that's because he had a really strong prep school in which, you know, these people were, you know, the, the pretty much the elites. Yeah. Yeah. You take those ideas too. Yeah. I want to backtrack mm -hmm. just a little bit. Sure. Um, is there a way to completely define the Afrofuturist perspective? Well, you know, I think, it's it's it encompasses a lot, but I'd say, you know, similar to what Ronaldo has spoken about too, 
this idea of black people being taken from Africa as slaves from, you could say, their home world Mm -hmm. to a new world, the United States, and being exposed to the worst excesses of technology, you know, 400 to 500 years ago, where they were already having to deal with being stripped of their culture and having to remake a culture in a new world and to become improvisational, to become more imaginative, when at some point they weren't allowed to use their drums, weren't allowed to speak their language, they had to create a new language, forge new beliefs, to infuse the Christianity they were forced to embrace with a new utopic understanding of what Zion meant for them, what freedom meant for them, became this utopic paradise to live into and to create in song. You know, so you have Zonic Utopias that they created that sustained us. And I think that's where Afrofuturism gets forged and constantly forged in the black imagination. Right. You know, this isn't something new. Mm. We've had this. We've, We've already been exposed to alien worlds. We've already been transported and had to create new worlds ourselves right. so we're great world builders i think right now you do know. you have to be black to be an afrofuturist i don't think so because so many minorities have had similar experiences too i right. mean europe wanted to conquer a lot of territory right exactly <laughs> so i mean in theory you can be welsh and be an afrofuturist yes Scottish. Scottish. Mm-hmm. You could be Scottish and be an Afrofuturist. <laughs> yeah. Just wherever you've had to create your way into some kind of a future because of, you know, unmitigated circumstances, be it war, be it oppression. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's the term. That's where Afrofuturism mm-hmm. comes into play. And right in now. fact, you know, I take a lot from queer theory. I take a lot from like looking at um, how... Uh, Chicano theorists have interpreted Afrofuturism too. Right. You know, and so it's like, I think we can take it all um, and, and, and look at it from that, from that perspective. And, you know, Afrofuturism is evolving too as a term. So, right. you know, it may morph too. <laughs> so um, I want to talk about, uh, I definitely want to talk about the Black Speculative Arts Movement because, you know, Speculative thinking, forecasting um, is really interesting to me because of how the, the, the artistry is created. The speculative thinking for, you know, imagining something and making a thing. And I think it's, uh, uh, it's really effective and it's and it's not like fortune telling. And I think a lot of the times when people think about talking and they t- talk about the future, they just you know you get a comment. Well, I'm not a fortune teller, you know, and, you know, and, and no one can do it. But I think the speculative movement is way better than fortune telling because you're actually asking yourself to solve a problem. You know, how did that come about? Like, how did the speculative arts movement happen? Oh wow! So. Um, Ronaldo uh, worked with John Jennings uh, to put on an exhibition at the Schoenberg uh, Research for Black Culture at the New York um, Public Library. And it was called uh, <clears throat> Unveiling Visions, the Alchemy of the Black Imagination. Mm-hmm. And they assembled artists and, and comic uh, writers and, and, and producers to display black visions of the future, really. And so this got such a great reception at the Schoenberg that Renato was like, let's let's make this into a movement. Mm. You know? And so launched started launching the Black Speculative Arts movements in Canada, in New York. There's one at the Bronx going on um this week mm-hmm. happening at they started he started like Putting them in Detroit and Prairie, Texas, and uh, St. Louis, and then he calls me up in fall and he says, "Lonnie, can you host a Black Speculative Arts Movement convention? Um, you know, in spring." Right. Now, usually, I would love to have a year to do this. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
but you know Trump had just gotten elected and I was like hell yeah yeah we gotta do this now yeah <laughs> this is the time yeah we might not be able to do this mm-hmm. again yeah and uh and and we also want to make this an annual event now oh yeah and when I brought it to um the director of our university diversity office at Kelsey Spade Diane Rush Woods bless her heart she was like yeah okay I'll give you two thousand I was like what and it wasn't even asking for money right and she was just like yes you know, so she got it right away. And, and so have the people I've talked to, you know, I mean, we're, Cal State East Bay is one of the most diverse campuses in the U S. Wow. And so, um, I'd say that as an enterprise, like I said earlier, we always have to speculate about the future. We have to kind of have like the, the double unconscious or the double consciousness from WB Du Bois. We always have to kind of be a step ahead to anticipate what's going to happen next. Right. And so I think speculation comes out of that. And, um, you know, that, that it's really about exploring, um, spaces that people don't normally think about. And I think that if, when you talk about the future, it, it is something that you can create as an artifact. You don't want to, you don't need to predict the future. You know, predictions are boring. You know, it's more about creating stories. Yeah, about the future to anticipate and discuss problems from that, and and really, when you're talking about the future, you're actually talking about the present too, right? You know, so you're not coming, you're not going, you're not leaving the present, you know. Yeah, and I think and, sci-fi really lends itself to that. I mean, we see all of these things, you know, that Roddenberry speculated about in the '60s on Star Trek, and you see them now. It'd be the advent of cell phones, or even when you're talking about wanting those things because i know peter peter diamandis does the x prize and he has an x prize right now for a tricorder you know and there are people actually Mm -hmm. actively trying to invent a tricorder and i think that's that's the beauty behind speculation and speculative arts is like it 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 jump starts your imagination to think about things that you would want or that you would need and it makes you make it now you know, or it makes you get started now, at least. And that's how we, like, I think, move industry forward. I like to think that in the 70s, I really invented the iPhone because <laughs> I had my Texas Instruments calculator. Yeah. And it was doing way more for me than what it was right. meant to do. Yeah. I was like, it was a tricorder. It was scanning <laughs> things. It was, I made it, it was a spaceship for me. At some right. Point, you right. Know? right. <laughs> it was all these things. So, and then at the, coming to the Institute for the Future, too, I was like, I met an artifacts designer. Who huh. materialized the future for people? Jason Tester, who comes yeah. out of the design program at Stanford, right? And he was he was creating he was like creating postcards and uh, you know reputation bills that right. would show how your reputation was going on on social media. So it became he creates these artifacts, you know. And then I met Ian Pollock at um, Casey Bay, who's the director of our multimedia program and interaction design program, and he was the person I'd been looking for all my life basically to come to my campus to be this interaction designer. Right. So he taught me a lot about rapid prototyping as did Andrea Saveri from a consultant that we had from the Institute for the future. I talk about rapid prototyping. What, what is that? And, and Mm -hmm. how do you do it? Well, you know, the way we've done it, and this is gets into our game jam Mm -hmm. that, um, Ian Pollock puts on every month and that we're doing a, a game jam about the future to Minority Futures 2054. And basically, you'll give some type of um, prompt for people. It might be to combine, let's say, uh, a verb and a noun or something, and you'll put it together. Like, I don't know, example could be, I don't know, I'll I'll do something stupid, but the theme could be playable campus, and you might have like, stairs and um stairs and fire or something like that and and you you put these terms together and you come up with a with a rapid idea you sketch it on on the on the poster Uh and then you'll pitch it to a group of people you know so everyone will will pitch it pitch their ideas and then people will gravitate to the one that they want to be the idea they want to um help develop right you know i think one idea I came up with for our playable campus theme that we had was what if you went up the stairs and as you went up the stairs there was a melody playing 
you know, right before you go to class. Wouldn't it be great to hear, you know, Beyonce playing as you go into class and you're all jazzed up and you're ready to go and you, you know, you just heard Lemonade, you know? (laughs) And so, you know, that's the, that's the type of like, where you come up with that rapid prototyping and you get the feel of agency, like, oh, I can do this. Right. I'm given the right to do this. Yeah. In fact, that should be in our constitution. You have the right to prototype. Right. (laughs) You know? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Shall not be a bridge or taken away from you. Right. And that you can do that. And here the steps are. I think if more kids had that too from the get-go, yeah. they, I mean, they do it already, right? They you know, play with Legos and, and yeah. stuff like that. But just have a part of the curriculum. Yeah. You know, does, Playtime doesn't have to end you know, when you come from, you know, uh, after you leave home. Yeah. It just can be continuous. Yeah, I wish I had that. I was just a you know mm. kind of a nerdy kid running around taking computers apart and putting them back together, you know. <laughs> and no one, and I got in trouble for it. You know what wow. I mean? Like it was, it was all about, you know. And this is this is also something that we talked about with Ronaldo on the podcast is this idea that we don't have the ability to do these things because we play under these rules that are constantly scrutinized and having that stem from our history of being abducted from Africa and brought to this country. And we, we've had to live within these confines to survive. And how did that affect us generationally? And, you know, we were talking about genetically also that might, might have altered us genetically, but a lot of the times you see children um, and, you know, not being able to play which, you know, as Neil deGrasse Tyson says, is experimentation. You know, you're really, when you're playing, you are an amateur scientist, you know. But you have right. these children who are not able to play and create because they feel like they have to be obedient and behave and they get in trouble for it. And um, a lot of the times when you talk to young people, they have these amazing ideas. They just don't want to tell you because they're afraid. They're afraid of being wrong. They're afraid of being put down. They're afraid of being, you know, judged in a way that they'll feel like, Oh, this is not, I guess I can't do this. This is not. So how do you get the kids to get the ideas out? Like what is the network? Like how do you even get them started on, Oh, we can do this and then put it out there in the world and, and, and the, the ideas generate and to actually come up with a thing to make a thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think schools are getting a little bit better at this now. Uh Um, they're, they're having kids, um, develop, develop, uh, stories or even, you know, skyscrapers, you know, having them build a skyscraper that would be their ultimate home or something. And they're doing this in art in school now. Um, They're having them do memoirs. They're having them build more. You know, at least in my daughter's school, they have adopted Common Core and they're doing Common Core in a way that I think is actually working because I know Common Core isn't universally uh, popular. Yeah. But I think they're doing it right. You know, right, right. they get more sophisticated concepts and they're having them do more project based learning. Right. Which is really important, you yeah. know. So, um, so, and then also talking about stuff at home. Like, they, they also get to see CNN um, at school. Mm-hmm. So they're getting exposed to ideas about space and science, for right. instance. Right. And then, so when I come and talk to her about something like the new Trappist uh, system of seven Earth like worlds that were discovered, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, we have those conversations. And she's like, oh, yeah, we, I heard about that on CNN today in class. Right. It's like we can connect. Yeah, CNN mm-hmm. would do well if they made a CNN Kids. That was a 24-hour kids informational learning network. Yeah, yeah. I think they have some aspect of that, too. Like they have a CNN version for kids. Oh, yeah. Or maybe it's time. It's actually time. Yeah. I think it's time. But CNN should do it. Yeah, CNN, <laughs> I think, would they benefit from that. So the Game Jam. Talk about mm. where the games came from and what the Game Jam is. Yeah. So um, the Game Jam is this idea of you bring people from interdisciplinary backgrounds. You know, you have students from computer science, from philosophy, from English, from communication, from biology. And you put them in a room with a theme and see what they can come up with. Right. You know, literally jamming. And the idea of jamming is like, um, jazz improvisation you know you 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 know you kind of have an expertise somewhere and then you reapply it and improvise so this theme of jamming it's like an organizational communication concept too and a jazz concept as well right you know so 
so you have them like the playable campus theme or with the game gen that we're going to be doing called minority reports 2054 mm-hmm. you 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 put them in a room um have a theme give them prompts and so they create a <clears throat> they create an an idea on friday they they um develop a quick rapid prototype of it on friday pitch it to each other then develop that prototype over the weekend and sunday present it wow and uh so ian pollock has been my guru on this right um, the art professor at Cal State East Bay. And so I've been learning from him. And so he's done a game jam each quarter on our campus. Now, game jam isn't just for our campus. It's a worldwide game jams that are going on and right. they're getting more popular. Yeah. You know, um, Jane McConnell uh, at the Institute for the Future, she created a series of forecasting games, really also was another mentor in gaming for my uh, learning too. You know, and she was kind enough to give me her her sheets about what what game jamming uh what forecasting games were about right so um <clears throat> i think game jam is a really great metaphor to bring people together and we with ian i've been working on to kind of put a more futuristic spin on game jams right and you have a game that you brought that is a, a forecasting <laughs> game about the future and describe the game what's the name of the game now okay so Stuart candy he uh graduated from the Hawaiian uh, Political Futures um, program, got his PhD there, and he came up with a game called The Thing from the Future. Right. And what it is is that you have a green card called an art card, and it has a scenario on it. Uh, Now, it could be one of four scenarios. Um, They are growth, where things kind of go at a steady pace, collapse, where nothing's working, or you're severely constrained. Another one that is about discipline, that you are constrained, in particular ways by your environment and then transformation there's a profound technological or spiritual change that has happened and that green card it could be 10 years from now 50 years from now a century from now a generation from now or a thousand years from now you combine that with another card called a terrain card which is a blue card about um it could be about communication sustainability um you know something interesting geopolitics um even copyright and then you combine that with a mood card that would reflect a mood um, like optimism, tragedy, anxiety. And then you have an object card. What's the object that you would create in the future? And that could be a device, a slogan, a postcard, art, you know. And you juxtapose those cards together. And so say you had transformation for 2040 right. or 2054 and your object would be a headline. Right. And your mood might be optimism. I choose optimism just because we generally tend to have a dystopic view of the world right. sometimes in the future. So I want to yeah. like, challenge people to think happier thoughts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you might have communication you know, as your context card. Or um, augmentation, prosthesis. Right. You know, what would you, so what, like uh, augmentation, for instance. So what would, what would a headline for 2054 represent in terms of augmentation that would be happy? Right. All right, let me yeah. let me unpack. Let me try to do one <laughs> headline for 2054, an optimistic headline for 2054 human augmentation. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, that could be chemical or biological augmentation. Chemical or biological augmentation. Um, scientists realize that six million dollars is really all you need for the strongest arm wrestling champion. <laughs> yeah, only because I'm a big Steve Austin fan. You're right, right. Right, I was just, yeah, six million dollar man. Yeah, right. all you need is six million for a strong arm. You don't need 600 billion. You're good with six. Six, well, and the price, I would think, might even go down for the Yeah, that, exactly. Right? Yeah, I mean, by 2054, a bionic arm might be a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah, get one at your local Apple. Right, exactly. <laughs> go down to the Apple store and get some Apple care on your bionic right. arm. Well, right. um, Lonnie, I'm glad you are a resident Afrofuturist because we, we have to talk so much more and we have so many more things. And I think what... It's going to happen on the podcast is we're going to do these little in-between episodes where it'll be um, Lonnie and myself just talking about the future and talking about specific items of the future and um, as well as bringing a lot more guests and a lot more people. So um, this is our first full length of many, many more to come with with Dr. Lonnie Brooks. 
Uh, thanks for being our resident Afrofuturist and thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at Ahmed Best at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at Ahmed Best on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist podcast, please contact me again at Ahmed Best at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at Ahmed Best. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.